Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. And I have often said on this program that anytime someone comes out with a book about the Freedom Convoy, I'm going to welcome them onto this show. I, I had the great privilege of telling uh, part of this story myself in my own book, which came out uh, a little over a year ago now, The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. But I always, 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 always admit that this was never going to be the entirety of a story. I could only tell the story from one particular vantage point. I was not an insider, I was an observer, and I did my best to do justice to the stories of the people that were a part of this fantastic, and I would say also historical movement, but I was really eager to hear the stories of those who were in the, in the midst of it, those who were on the front line. We spoke with Tamara Leach when she wrote her own book about this, which fortunately she was able to do, uh, despite uh, some very stringent and strict uh, bail conditions. And I've known for a while there's another book coming out, which is Tom Morazzo's. It's called The People's Emergency Act. Now, I've spoken to Tom on this show and also off this program a great many times. He's always been uh, a tremendously humble but a very pivotal participant, not just in the convoy and its day-to-day -day logistics, but also in the discussions that took place between the convoy and the city of Ottawa, discussions which could have brought about a peaceful resolution and mitigation of the so-called harms that uh, some of the people in the media were saying the Freedom Convoy brought, uh, but those efforts were for naught when the Emergencies Act came into play. Uh, Tom testified, as you likely heard, before the Public Order Emergency Commission and was... <laughs> let, let's just show this little great clip of Tom when the media wanted to ask him some questions on the way out of the Public Order Emergency Commission. Mr. Marazzo, let me ask you a couple questions. You guys have been lying for three years. I don't want to talk to you. Well, fortunately, he never gives us that treatment, and we're so grateful for it. The book is The People's Emergency Act, Freedom Convoy 2022 by Tom Morazzo. Tom, congratulations on the book. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, Andrew. And, um, yeah, that, that clip, um, I, I remember when that clip came out and you did a story on it. And I was just about to rewind it again because I was watching your coverage of uh, what I had said to the media. And uh, I, I was just about to rewind it because I even thought it was funny from looking at it from the camera. And you're like, wait, but that's funny. Let's watch it again. And I'm like, I don't have to rewind it. So, yeah, I mean, like it, it, I had uh, I had no desire to uh, to talk to the legacy media. Uh, and I still feel that way today that. Um, you know, we look at all the people that are on trial or incarcerated around this country, and I just, it, it's incomprehensible to me that the media are not the ones that are on trial. And, you know, like that day when I refused to talk to them, I, I feel even more strongly about their, the harms that the media in this country have, have caused to ordinary Canadians, and just everybody, not ordinary Canadians, all Canadians. Mm -hmm. 
So Well, I, I think that is a, a perfect segue into your book, because mm-hmm. the, the whole point of the Freedom Convoy at the beginning was, I mean, if we really go back to the, the genesis of it, it was really spawned as a result of this uh, vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers, which is a relatively small, important, but a, a relatively small percentage of the overall population. But you compound that with general exasperation with COVID mandates and vaccine passports and all of this, and it becomes a movement against mandates. And uh, you and I have spoken about this in the past. By the end of it, when the Emergencies Act came in, I wouldn't even say the Freedom Convoy was about COVID anymore. I, I think in general, it was about the state's efforts to control our individual civil liberties. And, and, and I wonder if you look back on it as someone who was in the midst of it, when did you see that change happen? When did the, the mission of the Freedom Convoy, if you really, really morph from that more targeted resistance to COVID measures to something much bigger? I think during the convoy, it was it was the buildup, the rumors that were starting to happen about the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And, you know, you could see that there was this constant plea on our side to get something going with any government official because, you know, I I wasn't really in the beginning in favor of talking with the city. I just thought it was kind of a waste of our time. We weren't there for the city. The mayor of Ottawa had no power to, to overturn any of the mandates. The federal government had the power that we were we were seeking to, um, to, to discuss with them. But it became clear that when they stopped wanting to talk to us, uh, or sorry, not wanting to talk to us, when they just refused to talk to us, and mm-hmm. we finally got something going with the city, we were getting progress, but then something shifted. And then you saw the city disengage, and then we went to this, the Emergency Act. And, and the rumors about it were very strong just before he invoked it. And then he actually invoked the Emergency Act, and we said, okay, this situation has fundamentally changed now for us. Uh, and we need to, to choose our, our steps very carefully. And again, that's when the board of directors for Freedom Corps and Keith Wilson and several others uh, created the Roadmap to Freedom document. And then we put forward that in the public. And that really was was transformative in terms of the overall intent of what the convoy was trying to achieve with where we were on the third week. One of the things, and I, and I don't mean this as, as an insult at all, because I think if anything, it's a compliment. But when, when you first spoke up uh, and you were first sort of presented in, in the way the media does as, as being a spokesperson of the convoy, which is as people who have followed this closely know is, is kind of a made up term in general, because yes. whoever just, you know, was quoted at a particular moment was a spokesperson. But my first response was, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Because I, I had never heard of you and I had uh, never heard of, of a lot of the people that had spoken up. And, and I think that was the matter magic of it really is that you had these people that were not part of the usual suspects of political organizers and and political activists but I I know there was a bit of friction about this internally and I I certainly you know Benjamin Dichter who uh, as we've discussed in the past wanted to really control and and funnel all communications through him and and didn't really have a tremendous amount of success the the longer it went on but when you did sort of speak up it was a departure from what you had already anticipated because you had wanted to be a behind-the-scenes guy just go and, you know, the joke that you had was just feed the soldiers, basically. So what changed in you that that made you more comfortable or willing to have a a public face here? 
Well, the, the reality was is that I had no intention of doing any of the media. I didn't want to be doing any spokesman stuff. And I, and I remember the day I was in the back of the room when Tamara gave the first press conference with Joannie and Danny Bulford, and it was kicked off by Keith Wilson. I was at the back of the room. My stomach was in knots. I was literally terrified. All just, I remember, just, on, just on behalf of their nerves. Yeah, you were, you were feeling their, sympathy I, nervous. Yeah, and I was okay. looking at Tamara. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, we're in the house of Tamara here. She owns that podium. And I, I remember saying to a friend of mine, Jack McClellan, saying, I'm glad that's not me. I, I'd be terrified. And it was funny because Danny went up to the podium next, and you could see Danny was was quite nervous. But something that's happened. That's Danny, Danny Bulford, the yeah. former RCMP yes. officer. And so... You know, the night that the police raided Coventry, what happened was a lot of the leadership, the board members, they said, look, we need to do a live stream because I came back. I went down to Coventry and I, I reported that this had no impact whatsoever on our, our ability to continue doing what we're doing. It, it wasn't going to, to interrupt our sustainment whatsoever. And so people said to me, you're going to do a live stream and give that statement. And so my thought was, I don't know that I really want to be out there doing any of this, this statement stuff. But then more and more people kind of jumped onto the idea and they were like, okay, no, we're okay. I'm going to do the, the live stream. I'm going to do it. And I was like, okay, this is going to get out of control. So my thought was just do a quick update and then that'll be sort of the end of it. I didn't realize that that was kind of like my audition. Uh, that wasn't my intent. It wasn't my intent at all. But the next day, the board and several other members said, that went well last night. We'd like you to do a, uh, a live stream. Now, I didn't know it was a live stream at the time. Uh, the very first thing, because I think Lincoln Jay was the one who was, was covering it from Rebel News. And I didn't realize this was going to be live. I, I actually looked over to the corner, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a phone that was on and it was live streaming and I could feel the bile coming up uh, from my stomach. I almost threw up on the desk when I realized it was live. It wasn't my intention to be a spokesman of any kind for the convoy, um, but I was asked to do it. And you could see the first time I spoke, the entire board was standing behind me. So it's not like I chose to do that all on my own. It was, I was requested to do it and I was supported by the board. And in fact, uh, it's, it's either the second time or the first time, but you saw, you know, I, I was either with Chris Barber uh, or Bridget Belton. In the next one, I believe I was surrounded by the entire board and several of the other trucking captains and some of the doctors. So it was nothing that I ever sought to do. In fact, I really didn't have any interest in it. I was requested to do it because of the role that I was in. You, just to turn to your book specifically here, Tom, you had originally, I know, wanted to have this book out on the one-year anniversary, I think it was, of, of the Emergencies Act coming yes. in, so in, in mid-February. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that you've delayed this, I, I believe, a, a couple of times. And, mm -hmm. and part of it, as I understood, was that you didn't feel you'd have the whole picture by then. You know, you wanted mm -hmm. to actually uh, see through the process of the, the Public Order Emergency Commission and then the final report and then, of course, get your own reflections down on, on paper and I'm curious if your perspective has actually changed in that time you know if you were to have this book written and out in February of this year versus doing it now yeah I think the decision to delay was the right decision 
And when I originally started this project, it, it took me six months to even decide if I wanted to because I, I was concerned that it wasn't my, I didn't own the story. I felt that Canadians mm -hmm. owned the story. And so I, I wanted to be very clear about what was my intention to write this book. And so I began really wanting to make sure that I covered only what I participated in, that I wasn't drawing conclusions or I wasn't um, quoting other people. I didn't want it to be a historical report from that perspective. I, I, I jokingly said, I'm going to treat it like though, as if though I have a GoPro on my head. And if the GoPro camera didn't see it, it didn't happen in my book. Hmm. So that's kind of how I approached it. And the second thing is I didn't want to, there, you know, there were some things that happened in the background that aren't very flattering to a lot of people that were involved. I didn't want to write a book criticizing the people that I, I interacted with because they were doing the best that they could given the circumstance. So I didn't want it to be about that either. But as I was participating in the audience at the Public Order Emergency Commission, it became painfully clear to me that I couldn't tell this whole story accurately if I wasn't able to sort of, to use the term from elementary school, compare and contrast what we were thinking versus what the government and law enforcement were thinking. And so I thought that that was an important thing. There are several chapters where I refer to the testimony and I, and I reviewed the footage again. I read all of the, I downloaded and read all the stuff. So they are direct quotes from the people involved. And it was important to me to try to match up, you know, what we were aiming to do and what the government was aiming to do and then to illustrate what the result was. And so I agree still with my decision to delay the book and to try to capture that because some people suggested do two books. I'm like, <laughs> doing one is going to kill me. So I, I thought I'll just, I'll just do the one and try to encapsulate everything into one. One thing that I found fascinating about the the convoy in general, and I, I think it was Keith Wilson who who first, when I was interviewing him for my book, had brought this up, is how you had all of these people who had these skills that they had developed over careers in law enforcement or medicine or military that were laid off, and they had time on their hands and they had a skill set, and it was those skills that really drove the Freedom Convoy because mm -hmm. you had this military-like operation in, in some ways, and I, I know you brought this with your own experience in, in the Canadian Armed Forces. But the, the, the other side of that is that there were there were a lot of people that really looked at law enforcement that were being called in to respond to and to rein in the Freedom Convoy with a level of mixed emotion. And, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people on the right politically that are very pro-police and pro-law enforcement, but uh, they sort of expected that, you know, there were some very heartwarming encounters where people had nice interactions with police during the convoy, but at the end of the day, uh, the police took their marching orders and, and they went in and they uh, did what they needed to do to contain a situation. And, and I'm curious how you view that with your background in military, where you understand chain of command, you understand authority, and you understand the, the natural order of things versus this movement that you were a part of, which was about what those efforts by law enforcement are supposed to be in pursuit of, which is the, the rule of law and, and freedom. And, and how do you reconcile those two parts of your life? It's a great question because in, in my military career, I have had the opportunity several times to work with law enforcement. In fact, in one of my, my postings as an army officer, I was posted to a reserve unit 
the commanding officer to the reserve unit I was with was a police officer in his full-time job, and so was the, the regimental sergeant major, and a lot of the leadership of that unit. So I've, I've worked with police through the military, and you know I participated low-level nighttime duty officer in the GHE 20 summit in 2010. You know that happened in Toronto, so I've got a lot of experience. A lot of my friends in Niagara are police, so I, I understood that perspective. But when you look at what the goals of the convoy were, it, my let's say my professional opinion was that we needed to to abide by the law to the greatest extent possible. And I thought we had a responsibility to be responsible and to be safe, not only for the public, for the, the convoy participants, the supporters, the, the residents of, of Ottawa. We had a responsibility to be safe and responsible. And the best way for us to have achieved that, and I do believe that until they invoked the Emergency Act, the best way to achieve that was to try to align our goals with what the responsibility of the police were to the public. And so we worked closely with the Ottawa police every single day. We had interactions, not just myself, but several people to always achieve a safe and responsible environment so that everybody could get what they wanted. And, you know, we saw during the commission, the police never asked for the Emergency Act. They never needed it. They never requested it. They didn't want it because they knew that they had the tools at their disposal. We were in constant communication with the police. And so the government, the political apparatus in this country made the decision to invoke the Emergency Act, not at the request of the police, but it was a political decision, pure and simple. In fact, to the point where they ignored police recommendations to continue doing engagement. And the OPP produced a, uh, an engagement plan, and it was presented to Cabinet, the, the, um, the uh, IRG, in Justin Trudeau's cabinet. It was presented to him on the 13th of February to have an engagement plan with us. And there was people identified who the government could have a sit down in, in conversation with. The government ignored it. And the next day they invoked the Emergencies Act. So it was important to us to always keep safety lanes open. And no matter what the legacy media lies about, and, you know, detractors and people that are just nasty and want to vilify us. We always had safety lanes open. And even the fire department testified to that. And so did the police, you know. And the first thing I did when I got there on day one was identify um, vulnerable infrastructure like old age homes or retirement homes, hospitals, the police station, fire departments. We marked it on a map to make sure that we were not uncovering their ability to get to citizens in need. But that's never going to be the story in the legacy media or for the government. But we worked really hard to make sure that we were always safe and responsible. And we worked with the Ottawa police and make no mistake. The two days when the police invaded, or sorry, not invaded, that's a terrible word, but attacked the public, those were not Ottawa police. Those were police departments from different jurisdictions because the, the convoy participants built a rapport with the Ottawa police. They were pulled away from the front lines. It was other police departments like the Sûreté de Québec, uh, the OPP outsiders came in and, and did what they did to the public, not the Ottawa police. But 
Let's go down to that individual level, because there's a, a line in your book where you say, I can't comprehend how a police officer in Canada could obey an order to attack peaceful protesters with such violence and ease. Now, uh, this is uh, specifically in response to uh, the gentleman who actually testified before the uh, Public Order Emergency Commission, uh, Chris Deering. Yes. Uh, but but in general, when, when you look at the individual officers that were involved in this operation, what, what's the view you have on them? Do you believe that they were basically just casualties in, in a similar way of, of decisions that were being made by the political overseers? Or do you feel that they are, are complicit in what you view as being your grievance with the government? You know, it's a, it's a very fascinating question because, you know, they brought in something called a public order unit or, you know, traditionally called uh, riot squads and stuff like mm -hmm. that. They brought people... Well, like you would have seen at the, the G20 and, and G8, Exactly. Right? And, you know, we're still 13 years later after the G8, G20 summit in 2010. The lawsuits are still ongoing from that. And, you know, the police were supposed to have learned a lot of things about <laughs> how they conduct themselves in, in that kind of situation. But... I think the individual police officers were trained in public order tactics and some of them just went a little too far. You know, I think there's, there's, um, police officers have an enormous amount of individual discretion with what they're doing. And police officers are also trained in the concept of mob mentality. Because it doesn't just happen to the mob, it happens to the police as well. So there are psychological factors that do happen when you're in a riot or a protest or when you're putting a lot of people and there's a potential for violence. Police are trained in these psychological effects that they may experience while they're on the front line of a protest or a riot. And I think mm -hmm. some of them succumb to this. I, I think some of them acted absolutely unprofessionally. The things that they did to Canadians, the things they did, for example, you mentioned Chris Deering, uh, who notified the police before he was beaten by them that he was an injured combat veteran from Afghanistan. And other veterans said, hey, this guy, this guy, and this guy, they're injured. So, and Chris surrendered to the police. And for his mm -hmm. surrender, not only did they kick him where he was injured, but they were punching him in the head while he was on the ground. Completely unnecessary for somebody who surrendered, right? So I think the individual police officers have to go home and look in the mirror and say, did I do my job today? Did I serve and protect? And I hope some of them reflect on it and say, I didn't have a good day today. And others say, tomorrow I'm going to do better. But I think individually, the police all know the police are always responsible for their individual actions, no matter what order they're given by their supervisors. Police that's drilled into police that they're responsible for everything they do regarding interactions with the public because they're susceptible to being personally sued. But you put them in a riot unit and what happens? That's how they conducted themselves, despite their training. Well... Yeah. And, and again, I mean, even in military, one of the, the developments over, you know, international law and military conduct has been that you can't just hide behind obeying an order. It's obeying a lawful order. And yes. that's a, a very important caveat. I'll be albeit again, it, it raises important questions on if you're an individual officer, how do you decide? How do you assess? How do you adjudicate the, the lawfulness of, of an order? 
let's talk a little bit about your goals here, because I, I know that at this point we have, you know, 17, 18 months almost of of canon, if you will, of, of people that have told versions of the, the Freedom Convoy uh, through their own eyes, through a journalistic lens, through legal lens, the Public Order Emergency Commission. Uh, by, by offering your book now, is your goal to offer just new information that, that's never really been entertained before? Or is it to offer a new perspective on things that are already out there? I think both are, are valuable. I'm just wondering what your motivation was more predominantly. Well, I, I was somewhat influenced by a lot of the repetitive questions that always come up about the convoy. You know, for example... This this idea of putting all the vehicles up on Wellington, uh, you know, has become a very, very contentious mm -hmm. issue. But you have to understand, Canadians went there for a peaceful protest. They didn't go there to conduct tactical operations. Right. They weren't there for violence. So when we get a lot of people that say, oh, you you put everybody all in a in a turkey shoot, you line them up and tactically they were weaker and like, no, you're then you're missing the point. We weren't going to Ottawa to conduct violent tactical operations, putting everybody on Wellington, which I was very instrumental in that goal. This is what I, I was advocating for the first day I arrived was because that was a strategic decision to put the pressure on the prime minister, to put the pressure on the government, take the pressure off of the city police, thereby the politicians, the residents that would have they would have aligned with us to put the government on Justin Trudeau to say, hey, you've got a problem. Settle this problem in our city, would you? But in, you know, by doing this, yes, I strongly advocated for a strategic decision to put the pressure where it was due on Justin Trudeau. And so, you know, I did talk about that because that is a contentious issue amongst a lot of a lot of the supporters, people that didn't really understand what we were trying to accomplish. And I wasn't the only one who advocated for it, but I would say that I was largely responsible for that that decision making in the very beginning, or I was advocating for it and recommending it. I wanted more vehicles up onto Wellington. I thought that was where they needed to be. And there was resistance to that idea. But, you know, overall, I'm not trying to rewrite history in any way. What I'm trying to do is give people an understanding of why me personally, what I thought needed to happen and the decisions that I thought needed to be recommended to the board. Nobody controlled the truckers. The board didn't control the truckers. The individual truckers made their own decisions. We just wanted to put them in a position that was going to best accomplish the overall goal, which was to end the vaccine mandates in Canada at the federal level. And so these are the decisions and these are the conversations and the stories. And, you know, for example, there's a lot of this rhetoric about these secret meetings that were held. I outline all of those in the book because I think they're important because there's a lot of lies being told about those particular discussions, complete untruths, you know, people spreading rumors and lies of things that never took place and never happened. And in the book, I go through great lengths to explain every step of, you know, those meetings that involve Dean French or uh, Jim Can or Steve Kanellakis from the city manager's office. 
all of that stuff was spelled out in great detail in the book. Looking at your life post-convoy, mm-hmm. I, I know that it's this tremendous high that a lot of people went through, and I still hear people that were a part of this that were so proud to have played a, a role, large or small, or even just to have seen it. You've gone from a guy that, like you said, never wanted any notoriety to being one of the most, I, I don't know if one of the most vocal is the way, but certainly mm-hmm. one of the most prominent and, and known participants of, of this. And, and I'm wondering what you want to, if anything, channel that into after this book? Because you're obviously putting your story down here. Is there a part of you that wants to keep this alive in some way? Or, or do you feel this was a, a chapter in history that's now closed and we open the next one? Yeah, I think this is a chapter that, that we close. The convoy's over. Um, and I would like to try to get my life uh, back on track. Uh, it, is, it has cost me dearly in, in many personal ways. Uh, it's also, I've also, my life has been enriched in many different ways as well. And, you know, the convoy wasn't about Tom Morazzo, not in the least. I, I was there for my kids and for, for my family. And that was the motivation. It, it was never about me. I didn't intend to play a significant role in the convoy like I ended up evolving into. And now that the convoy is over, I'm just telling the story and I'm going to leave it up to Canadians to decide what, what they, if it aligns with them or not. But I think my goal going forward is just to uh, end that chapter, see what happens. I'm not really thinking about another run in politics. Um, I'm actually, I've already started the draft on a second book, but it's fiction. Uh, it's terrifying because I've, I've discussed it with a few people and they're saying, hey, is this a fiction book or is it a prediction book? I'm like, you'll have to wait and see. But I like to write. I, I like to um, comment on current events that are happening in Canada. But I think in, in overall, I'd like to just settle down, fade off into the distance uh, and get my life back as best I can, or as much as you know the federal government will allow. Uh, and if they don't allow it, then you might see a chapter two of, of Tom Morazzo. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, I've I've taken it as far as I think that uh, I can take it. And if there's a need for me, Canada will tell me. If there's not, I'll be more than happy to ride off into the sunset. The backdrop of our discussion this week is, of course, that uh, Tamara Leach and, and Chris Barber are, are on trial. And I know you've uh, maintained as much as you're lawfully allowed to with, yeah. with bail conditions, uh, a, a good rapport with, with, with them. I'll ask you, because I, I know that there is this tend to be somewhat conspiratorial among people that are in the Freedom Convoy movement, where anyone and everyone is a fed <laughs> in some way. It's like, oh, yeah. he's a fed, she's a fed, they're a fed, everyone, I'm a fed, you're a fed, everyone's a fed. Yeah. Uh, but but I know there was skepticism towards people that were not charged or yeah. people that did not have their bank accounts frozen. Now, you did have the bank accounts mm-hmm. frozen, but you actually never had, to, to my knowledge, any uh, arrest or, or charges against you, even when you were speaking at that a closing press conference, right. uh, you had said, to your knowledge, there's no warrant for your arrest, and and you were fine, despite having been prominent, despite being important enough to the government to freeze your bank account. So uh, why do you think that is? So, uh, why do you think that you and, and some others that 
there was just as much of a case as, which is to say not much to charge as there was for Tamara and Chris, but didn't go that that way. Yeah, that's such a perplexing question. Sorry to stutter there. Um, I spoke to Danny Bulford yesterday at the first day of uh, Chris and Tamara's uh, trial. And, and him and I had the same question, the, like the exact same conversation we're having now about being accused of being a Fed and you didn't get charged and all this stuff. And the answer is, I don't know, but it doesn't mean I still can't be charged later. And as we saw in April mm-hmm. of this year, Harold Jonker was uh, charged with the same charges that yes. Tamara Leach is, is now facing in her trial started. So... There's no statute on this, and I confirm that with uh, Keith Wilson, that there's no statute on this. I could be charged a year and a half from now with the same things, uh, and I think we will see what the outcome of Chris and Tamara's trial are, and if they are convicted, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if a whole group of us get round up and charged with these things. Um, all I can say... Yeah, it's the test case for the, the overzealous case. prosecutors. Yeah, basically. yeah, and, and all I can say is that... I just don't know why I was charged. Uh, And in terms of the allegations of being a Fed, I've been accused of being CIA, FBI, RCMP, Ottawa Police, OPP, I think Mossad and other stuff. I mean, the allegations are all over the place. You can go on my old YouTube channel when I was a teacher and watch all my software videos where I was teaching at Georgian College. Um, well, you were no, you were doing the long con. That's how they get you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because I knew Israel pandemic. planted you at that yeah. college in uh, you know 1997 or whatever. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I just, if they're going to charge me, they're going to charge me, and I'll deal with it at the time. Uh, but at this point, even I search for you know what's the indictable indictable offense that I may have committed. And I'm not a lawyer or a police officer. Uh, am I surprised? Yeah, I, I was very surprised. Uh, and this is why on the last five days, I called the Ottawa, or sorry, the OPP every day. And I said, are there any warrants for my arrest today? And they said, nope, there's not. I said, okay, well, if there are, call me and I'll surrender myself. But that call never came. And it doesn't make any sense why 15 months later they would charge Harold Jonker. Um, it's still mm-hmm. to this day, I don't understand why they're charging Chris and Tamara um, or any of the other people that have been uh, rounded up and in, in charged, especially you're seeing all these charges being dropped all over the country. Um, why Chris and Tamara's trial is proceeding is is just, you know, the eighth wonder of the world, I guess. Fair enough. Tom Morazzo has written his story of the Freedom Convoy in a fabulous new book, The People's Emergency Act. Tom, always a pleasure. Thanks so much, and and congratulations with the book. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you very much. Really appreciate the time. That was Tom Morazzo here on The Andrew Lawton Show. And on entirely different notes, we have a bit of an announcement to make. This is the last show in this particular format, in this particular time slot, because next week, The Andrew Lawton Show is going daily, Monday to Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Mountain Time. Now, if you can't tune in live, you can, of course, uh, catch the podcast or uh, catch the archive video basically immediately after. But... 
Uh, we are going to change things up. We're going to focus on the live show as much as possible because it is that much more fun. And uh, you get an extra show from me every week. So hopefully that won't be too intolerable for you. But that is uh, kicking off on Monday at 1 p.m. And we'll have over the course of next week uh, footage from my coverage of the Conservative Party of Canada convention in Quebec City, which is actually uh, I know I just talked about how great live programming is, but why we've pre-taped this one, uh, because I am actually going to be in Quebec City by the time you see this doing that coverage. So if you see me uh, tweeting away about that right now from there, I'm not in two places at once. This I actually recorded uh, the other day, but uh, we'll see you on Monday. Thank you. God bless and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.